Well, hello, this is John again, one of the pastors of the Open Door Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I pastor the church with Reverend Cheryl Kellop, my co-pastor. We're in the middle of a series right now in preaching on vocation, and it's a really fun series because she and I are not doing the preaching, but folks from within um, our church community are. And today... This sermon is with Dr. Scott Hagley. It's a good one. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Um, I always love hearing uh, Scott preach and teach, and so I don't need to say much because he's going to say it all. So here it is. Let's, uh, let's pray. Gracious God, give us ears to hear what you might have to say to us by way of your text, by the way of conversation with one another. Give us uh, a heart to receive what you're saying. Give us hands to serve and feet to follow you and your path out into the world. In Christ's name, amen. Our text for this morning is uh, from Revelation chapter 21. So we started in Genesis last week. We're just going to skip all that stuff in the middle. We're going to go into Revelation 21. So, yeah, yeah. it's a cliff notes. So uh, let's, let's hear the word of the Lord this, for this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them and they will be God's peoples and God's self will be with them and be their God. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. So our vocational story starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. And as Dave helped us to see last week, we need to get the beginning right if we are to understand the human vocation. As image bearers of God, we are invited and gifted to play in the garden that God has created. We please God by enjoying the gifts of God. We join the work of God by using our God-given gifts to build and to explore and to shape the created order. And yet we all know that so many of our attempts to play and to build and to explore and to understand are chased by a kind of futility. Work is hard. Progress is elusive. And I mean, let's face it, if we get to do the things we want to do, we still are going to die and probably not get to enjoy it. I know we come to church for good news, but that's true. And so this is perhaps why the Genesis creation myths pivot so quickly from stories of creation to the story of the fall. 
Adam and Eve, you remember, are expelled from the garden because they are unable and unwilling to live within the boundaries that God had set for them. And as a consequence, God tells them that their work will not be easy, that survival in the world will come by the sweat of their brow, that the weeds will crowd out their crops, that childbirth will be painful. The world, Genesis reminds us, is not as it should be. We're like children building sandcastles on the beach. All the works of our hands are threatened consistently, constantly, by futility. And yet, knowing this, we still cannot help ourselves. Cast out from Eden, human beings go to work. They cultivate land. They build cities. Cain and Abel proved to be very successful farmers before jealousy intervenes and Cain kills Abel, but that's a different story. True. <laughs> and after God passes judgment on Cain, and God casts Cain to the land east of Eden, away from the Lord, Cain goes back to work and builds a city. We must work to survive. And we seem driven to work. And we even might say that our work is good, but we know that it's not altogether good. We know that we experience the goodness of work only in fragments, and we know that we are all tempted to use our power to destroy rather than to build. You know, we talk about the road to hell and good intentions and all that kind of stuff, right? So this brings us back to the city. Cain builds a city. The people at the Tower of Babel build a city. David builds a city. Cities put on display the problems and the possibilities of our work. They are human constructions. They are a creation of human hands. They are the problem of, of human work writ large. They express our ingenuity and our aspiration. They show off what we're capable of. They are impossible apart from engineering and mechanical expertise. They require stable institutions. They show off our capacity as creatures for incredible relational, social, economic, and political organization. Cities are our glory. And they are also a demonstration of our sin, our fragmentation, our general dysfunction. Mary Beth and I joked that we could write a novel based on the things we see at the corner of Highland and Bryant throughout the year. City life is this wonderful confluence of human creativity and cooperation, human eccentricities and diversity. But they are also a sign of our corruption and our selfishness, our propensity to violence and fear. One person's freedom to rollerblade down Highland Avenue, this is true, backwards without a helmet, <laughs> regularly in the summer with this like grin on his face that... We just hope we don't see what I'm worried we might see. One person's freedom to rollerblade down Highland is alongside another person's desire to just ride the bus without being harassed. Cities are human in the deepest sense of that term, and they demonstrate the glory and the foolishness of any work that we might set our minds to. We can certainly build a tower to the heavens, and we do. But then we find something to fight about and no one gets to enjoy it. We create astounding works of art and we do. But then they become commodified by the feelings, squirreled away in galleries 
or in private collections. We create a safe space where we say all are welcome, so long as we don't invite those people in here. We are all Cain in some ways. East of Eden, blood on our hands, strangely blessed by God, and distant from God at the same time. What I want to say is what is true of the city is true of our work, that this business of being human is ambiguous. It's inscrutable. It feels as though we are maybe damned if we do and damned if we don't. But look, behold, John says in the 21st chapter of Revelation, God is making all things new. A new city, a new Jerusalem is coming to, the, to earth. And in this city, God will dwell with God's creation. And we will dwell with God. There will be no more suffering and God will wipe away every tear. The old earth, the old heavens are passing away. Make room for the new, John tells us. And on the surface, this vision of the new Jerusalem can feel like an escape hatch. And I think for most of us in the theologies we grew up in, it has provided an escape hatch. On the one hand, we say, look, God is going to wipe off the map all of the stupid little things people do. All the things that we do and say and build, it's all going to burn. So why invest in those things at all? Why not focus on spiritual things, the things that will last? And so we take the ministerial vocation and we elevate it above all others. It's better to be a minister than a salesperson. But if you must be a salesperson, at least use that position to do the Lord's work, right? Don't want to buy a car? No problem. Do you know where you'd go if you died tonight? <laughs> Which is a little creepy if you're trying to sell a car. But, you know, I'll leave that to the evangelists. Or we take this vision of the New Jerusalem. And we flip it the other way in an entirely different direction. And we see this promise of God as something that we must build toward and make, hap make happen. God gives us the vision of what the kingdom looks like. So let's go roll up our sleeves and make it, make it happen. We know what the kingdom of God is about. Let's get on with the hard work of creating the kingdom. This city of God, this new Jerusalem is ours to create. If we can just get our politics right, if we can just get our institutions just. We know that the arc of the universe is long and it bends toward justice. So let's grab the end and bend it as best we can. But neither of these approaches, I think, encapsulate or embody the Christian understanding of work. The first one divides the spiritual from the material. And it solves this deep problem of human frailty and futility by pretending that, that we are not human or perhaps that only what is spiritual is truly human. And the second one assumes right action on our part can somehow overcome and override all of the social and cultural inertia that we face. And so our work becomes saddled with the burden of getting everything right. And what happens is we end up crushed by the impossibility of the task. Because we have a hard time admitting that we are in the end Cain, wandering in the land of Nod, capable of building impressive cities, but also with blood on our hands. 
And so here's the bad news. And maybe this has all felt like bad news, but I'm going to give you a little bit more. <laughs> the biblical story doesn't offer us escape from this ambiguity. Rather, the biblical story invites us to push all our chips into the middle of the table and to go all in. The confession of our New Testament documents, the confessions of our church tradition, is that God comes near to us in the person and in the ministry of Jesus. In a first century Jewish man, living in the exurban wasteland of a global empire, God takes on human flesh and enters the human story. From what we know, this man is a carpenter in a small forgotten city called Nazareth. And he's doing that work until he gets caught up in a charismatic movement and gets baptized. And it's at the scene of his baptism that a dove descends from heaven, which would have been understood as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And the power of this event leaves, leaves this Jewish carpenter out into the wilderness where he fasts and prays for 40 days before returning to the cities of Palestine to announce that the long-awaited kingdom of God has come near. He begins moving around from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, and he's known by the questionable company he keeps. He's known by his stunning sermons, his miraculous healings, but he's mostly misunderstood. And many of the things he builds actually collapse within a couple years. By the third year of his ministry, after an unsuccessful sermon, he turns to his followers and he says, so are you going to leave too, huh? And they respond, where else can we go? It's not really a ringing endorsement. <laughs> and this all ends in disaster near the feast of the Passover. As certain leaders seize upon the crowds in Jerusalem and Roman fear about revolutionary violence, and they prosecute him for blasphemy and sedition. He dies outside the gates of Jerusalem in a brutal public execution. A blasphemer and an enemy of the state. Some of his last recorded words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cheer up. This is what we call the good news. But it is precisely because the word became flesh and dwells among us. Precisely because the muck and the mire of our human condition is embraced by God in Jesus Christ. That our building and our working, our striving, our hoping, that all of this has any hope or integrity at all. You see, the old order that is passing away in Revelation 21 is not our humanness. It's not our peculiarity or our particularity. It's not our bodies or our various interests or loves. What is passing away are all the human projects which make us think that we can somehow escape our condition, that we can be somehow more than a simply a creature loved by God and bound to earth. In the book of Revelation, this is signaled by the city of Rome, the so-called eternal imperial city. Rome was a wonder of the ancient world. And a wonder it was. It demonstrated the best of human discipline and creativity, organization and culture. It was magnificent, sophisticated, sensational. It was a wonder of the ancient world. 
But in Rome's quest for more, in its quest for domination and control, its quest to become something eternal and everlasting, Rome becomes, in the language of Revelation, a beast that threatens to devour the world. There are some other words that are just not good to say in church. I'm going to leave that for your imagination. You see, our embrace of work comes with the risk that we will use such work to escape our humanity, that we will seek to build something like Rome that escapes our human condition or which promises unlimited growth. But that isn't the shape of Christian work. For despite Rome's glories, the real power at work in the world, the biblical story reminds us again and again, is the crucified one. For the power of God is the power of suffering love. The power of God is the human life, the suffering, the failure, the death of Jesus Christ. The power of God is in the small, the local, the particular. It is the seed that falls to the ground and dies so that a new plant might be born. This is the way of the sun. And the passing away of Rome does not signal the erasure of our human particularities and loves. It doesn't signal the erasure of our achievements and desires. It signals rather the perfection of them. The redemptive saving work of God is not in spite of or against our humanity, but it's rather within it. It's through it. It is the unfolding and outworking of love. And love, we know, doesn't coerce. It's not forceful. It does not insist on its own way. Love honors the integrity of the other. And so God promises to fulfill our humanity as an act of love. In the same way that the Son takes on human flesh and yet remains fully human, this is how God enters our work as well. And it comes as a gift and it comes as a surprise. And so all of this means that we can be serious about our work without being boring. We can indulge our loves and our passions without being frivolous. We can be clear-eyed about the world without being fatalistic. This is the nature and shape of Christian hope. What we do matters. It matters to God. It even matters in an ultimate sense, but not because... uh, but only because God takes what we do and who we are and God perfects it. God perfects us by weaving us and our works into the bricks and mortar of God's city, the city of the sun. Rome passes away. Capitalism passes away. Thank God. Awards and notoriety pass away. Pittsburgh passes away. Christianity passes away. But love does not. Love, it turns out, gathers strength and is purified of its imperfections. Love works in such a way that heaven comes to earth and we learn to live with God and one another. And the world is finally made right, such that what we love and build here just might be transformed with us, given a new place in the new city that comes as a gift and comes as a surprise. As N.T. Wright says in his book, Surprised by Hope, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly about to be thrown into the fire. 
You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the, com- by the love of God and the, and the delight and beauty of God's creation, every act of care or nurture of comfort and support for one's fellow human being, beings and one's fellow non-human creatures, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will someday make. And so here's the invitation. All the dumb little things we care about, all the things that we make and build and dream and pursue, all the ridiculous jobs we do as a cog in the machine of the global economy, all the poems we write that nobody sees, the pictures we take, the songs that we sing, all of this matters to God. Because God is love. And God's love as given to us in Jesus Christ embraces all of this and all of us, even the crappy stuff. We are free in Christ to live full human lives, to seek the good and the noble and the true. And we are also released in Christ from the burden of perfection or completion. Our job is not to build the eternal city. It is to recognize and to receive the heavenly one, which begins now as we learn to love our neighbor, to play a song, to build a bridge, to care for a child. This work is good, and it is a glimmer of the goodness that is to come. Thanks be to God. Again, that was Dr. Scott Hagley. He's a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary here in the East End of Pittsburgh. He's a professor professor in missiology. Come check us out in person if you're just listening to this and you're not um, really connected in the community. The church is really about the people. And so we encourage you to come out. Um, We worship at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Neighborhood Academy in Garfield.